Hello, this is Mark Bryant, otherwise known as Double O, and you're listening to Left Coast Pirate. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? Hey, Tommy. Well, we, we did go 2-0 this week, so I, I should be doing great, right? Or, or at least that's what you would think. Over the weekend, I watched Nova turn up the D on Saturday and hold Xavier on the road to a season-low 55 points. And then Sunday, I saw Creighton flat-out dismantle Butler at one point doubling their score at 70-35. to 35. And I'm thinking to myself, why aren't we playing as sharp as these two teams right now? I honestly believe I've become spoiled this year. I mean, I, I want to see this team strive for perfection. I want to see them make the second weekend of the tourney and possibly go beyond. But what I haven't truly accepted is that we actually have been in the middle of our annual swoon ever since the first St. John's game at Madison Square Garden. The only game in that stretch in which we played a real clean game was at Nova. But we are still 7-3 and three during that 10-game run. Normally, the record would be like 3-7 and seven during that stretch. We would have gotten blown out by Nova. And we would be questioning whether or not we could make the tournament with the three-game gauntlet that we have left. So in the big picture, I'm doing pretty good today. I'm probably just going to need you to remind me that I am. Mikey, I don't know what to do with you anymore. Last week, we were bemoaning the fact that we were 0-2. This week, we came back, we took care of business, and we got back on track. Yes, have we been playing as well as we can? No, but sometimes good enough is good enough. So, this week on the podcast, we review the wins against Butler and St. John's. We go behind enemy lines with Ben Steele to talk about the Marquette Golden Eagles. And we take a look at the road to 24-94. But first, Seton Hall 74, Butler 72. The opponent may have been different, but the song remained the same. The Hall fans had right to be worried after Butler jumped out to an early 10-point lead through the first half. The Seton Hall Pirates stayed close and went to the half trailing 34-28. to A Miles Powell jump shot with 11.05 to play gave the Hall the lead at 45-44, their first lead of the game since 2-0. The game hung in balance tied at 63-all until Quincy McKnight hit a big three with under two minutes to play. But Butler would not quit, trailing by five 
drive with 47 seconds to go. They went on to hit three pointers on three consecutive possessions to tie it at 72. But after a desperation heave by Q went out of bounds with 0.6 seconds left to play, Sandro Mamukelis really saves the day with a lob layup at the buzzer for the win. Okay, Tommy, stats in this one. Quincy McKnight led the Pirates with 18 points, 14 coming in the second half. Miles Powell chipped in with 16 points, six rebounds, and five assists. Sandro and Gill had 15 each. And Kamar Baldwin led Butler on the opposite side with 20 points and six assists. Bryce Golden had 17 points, just one off his career high. Steeton Hall did clean up some of the stats that they were struggling in. They shot a robust 20 of 22 from the free throw line for 91%. They were much more judicious from three-point range, shooting 6 of 16 for 37.5%. And they actually had a plus 7 rebounding edge on the glass, 32 to 25. Well, Mike, before we get too deep into this game... You know, they don't have to all be pretty to be successful, Mike. A win is a win sometimes. And this one, we came back from a 10-point deficit. We played some strong defense in the second half. We hit the boards real well. And we came back and we took this game. But maybe that's what I want. Maybe that's what I'm lacking when I was giving you my monologue. Maybe I want a Picasso from time to time. You know, I just, uh, we were, we got excited over a loss against Creighton because it was beautiful basketball. I just would like to see a start to finish win in which we truly execute all facets of the game. But I get it. Butler is the kind of team that makes you play ugly basketball just because how they dig in on the defensive end and make you work for every shot. So to come into the Butler game and expect this beauty of a performance, no, that, that wasn't realistic. This was going to be a typical rock fight just based on the two teams that took the floor. So I can't get upset about that, right? Let me give you the glass half full account of this, though, Mike. These are games we normally lose. I mean, how many times over the past few seasons have we made this crazy comeback from down double digits to just simply miss that last three-point heave or miss a free throw or something of that nature where we just don't come through. This year we're coming through. I mean, how many games have we been down at half? It's driving people crazy, but you're kind of sitting back and saying, all right, well, they're only up by 10 and a half. We got this where we want it. Well, it was only six this time, but it was the ninth time that they've actually rallied back to win a game. Nine. I believe that leads the country at this point. But they're playing with fire. So that's what that's what kind of scares me is, right? You're going to get into the NCAA tournament, and you're going to be playing a higher-level caliber of teams. Now, Butler's a quality team, but you get into a second-round matchup, a potential Sweet 16 matchup, and you get down by double digits, that could be lights out. So it would be nice to not play every game from 10 points plus behind. It, it, it just would. Well, it was definitely another slow start. I mean, it was 19-9 to after 8 minutes and 30 seconds of play. We had five turnovers, and we finished the half 5 of 20 shooting. I mean, it wasn't pretty. And what can we do to avoid this? Well, I mean... How about looking to impose our will a little earlier? It seems like every time we struggle, we start that second half by doing basically what we probably should have been doing from the beginning. 
we go down low. I mean, and I'm not just talking about feeding the ball down to Gill, but I mean, both Gill and Sandro were being strong on the inside. They couldn't be stopped. I agree. We, we shoot too many three-pointers. We've been shooting 25-plus three-point attempts, it seems like, in almost every game recently. This, this was an exception. They dialed it back after the start of this game, but we're going to talk about St. John's. They jacked up 28 in that game. They were shooting 30-plus in the previous two games that they lost. What I don't understand is after Seton Hall pulled out this game, I get the euphoria. I get the excitement. But everybody's writing their articles going, this is exactly what Seton Hall needed. Willard did exactly what he accomplished with calling out the team and getting them refocused. He did? They came out slow again. Now, I understand throughout the course of play in this game, they got back on track. They played their style of basketball. I would like to see it against a quality opponent right out of the start, specifically at home. It's just mind-boggling that they can't get their energy level as high as it needs to be opening tip against a quality opponent in their building. Well, you did mention that Coach Willard came through with some of the things he said from the previous week's comments. I mean, he was talking about getting on people, and then he talked about shortening the bench, and he really did cut minutes on some guys. I mean, Kale had 19 minutes. Shavar was only at 10. Nelson played six. Ike and Samuel got one minute apiece. I mean, if you looked at the ESPN box score at the end of it, I mean, Ike didn't even register. They literally had zero minutes on him. So so here's my question to you. I got into like a debate on rivals with a fan uh, as saying, hey, this is up for debate right now. Is it good to have a short bench or is it good to have this 10 deep rotation that was kind of a strength of ours early in the season? I don't know. What's your take on this going forward? I, I don't know that I like it, but I mean, I guess he has to do it if he's feeling he's not getting production out of this bench. But I mean, weren't we talking about how the strength of this team was going to be its depth? I mean, when Powell and Sanjo went down this year, you got really good contributions from players like Samuel and Nelson. Now, neither of them are getting any chance to do anything. I mean, Kale was a huge contributor last year, and he's he's kind of a forgotten man. So I, I, I don't like it. I agree with you from that perspective, is there are certain guys in that bench rotation where if somebody gets into foul trouble or somebody's having an off night, you would like to be able to count on 25 high-level minutes from Miles Kale, potentially not just playing defense, but scoring the ball for anywhere from eight to 10 points in a potential, you know, big moment. I would also like to know that if God forbid Quincy McKnight got hurt, or we all know he's prone to some foul trouble that we could run Anthony Nelson in there for 10 or 15 minutes. I'm not saying he needs to steal minutes from Shavar. Shavar can still back up at the two and at the three, like he's done, but find a way to have that true point guard on the floor I kind of feel at this point, Nelson has played his way completely out of the rotation for the remainder of the season. I, I just he didn't get the run in the St. John's game either. We'll talk about that. So his bench getting shortened could have some negative impact if we are in a bind in a tough spot. However, I'm going to give you another side of the coin here. If you compare this to like NBA basketball, most coaches will play their entire rotation, 10 to 12 guys, throughout the course of the entire regular season so they don't wear their guys down, you know, and they get that kind of balance. But when it gets to the postseason, when the mistakes become magnified, 
you all of a sudden see them shrink their rotation down to seven or eight guys. You can't have a situation where Kevin Willard brings his five guys in with the hockey substitution pattern and let them go in a five-minute funk where we get outscored by 10 or 15 points. And once again, we're back down by double digits. So I'm okay if he shortens it, but I'm, I'm kind of surprised as to who those seven guys are. I understand the concept. I mean, if you're thinking Ike isn't playing well for you and you're going to you're gonna put Mamu at the five for a while just to give Roe a blow, I get it. But you've got no backup point guard. I mean, it's a broken record for us, and, and you're doing nothing to get production out of that backup position at this point. So, I mean, it, it's, it, it's tough. I think we're beating a dead horse, though. I, I just don't think that that can be fixed. I think you're going to find five minutes to seven minutes with Shavar conservatively bringing the ball up. They're going to let Miles Powell run a lot of lead guard in those situations, hope that he doesn't pick up an offensive foul being too overly aggressive at the rim. And then you try to play Quincy McKnight 35 minutes a game at the point. That, that's just going to be the recipe for this team to be successful because, once again, you can't really have Q off the floor for too long because of what he brings defensively to this team as well. So I, like I, said, I, I get that Mike, but you're not getting a whole lot of production when you're running the quote unquote point guard that brings the ball up to the middle and then does just a handoff to, to Powell and goes with it. But let's move on. We're beating that dead horse. Let's go to the next topic. All right. So, so this was interesting to me. Normally we get a lot of quotes from coach and everybody else is kind of down the middle with their, you know, their coach speak from a player's perspective, but Miles kind of opened up and, you know, he went into some really in-depth kind of dialogue surrounding how he's being double teamed. I mean, he almost had like three or four paragraphs in transcript. So we're not going to read the whole thing, but here's my question to you. Did it show frustration or maturity the way Miles talked about him being double teamed? Well, I, I did listen to the, his quotes. I, I think his demeanor expressed a lot of maturity. He was speaking kind of very matter-of-fact, very analytical about it, and he seems to have a really good understanding of what he's seeing right now, but that doesn't mean I want to hear it. Now, Mike, you know, is Miles Powell, and it's not a, it's not from Miles. I guess this is, a, this is a slam on Miles. God forbid we slam Miles here, but... Is Miles the first guy to have this kind of defense run at him? Is Miles the first guy to be the man on a team? I mean, do we need to go back into Biggie's history and talk about all the great two guards that this this conference has seen? So it's interesting that you bring that up because I was talking to a good buddy of mine about this specific subject matter, and he said to me, he goes, you know how we were kind of criticizing Willard for calling out the players in the post-game comments with Gary and Dave right, you know, right after the previous game at Providence. And we were like, yeah, maybe that wasn't the right approach, but it was an attempt to send a certain message, whether it was right or wrong. Maybe Powell was trying to do the same thing here. Maybe he was trying to be like, hey, coach, I'm getting double teamed on like every play. <laughs> Kids should notice this by now. And like you said, this I'm not the first guy in the history of college basketball to be identified as the, the go-to guy that needs to be stopped. I think your buddy is 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 out here in California and he's going to dispensaries because I don't think at all that Miles would do that to Willard. I mean, they have this bond that has been written about like sonnets have been spoken of about their about their connection. 
So I don't think that Miles was throwing jabs at Coach. But you know what's nice, though? With this, all these things that Miles is seeing, we're still winning. And guys are stepping up. Mamu stepped up last week. Quincy had a nice run. And I'll tell you, we talked about it earlier. We'll talk about it again. That clutch three... You know, what were we saying? Did throw sets that pick? They b Both defenders fall back saying, hey, Quincy, take that shot. That was a big shot that Quincy took and hit there. All right, so I, I think this is a good point in the podcast to kind of wrap up the Butler game, and that's what I really want to do. I want to wrap up by kind of talking about the end game decision-making, the end game playmaking that happened in the last two minutes of that ball game because outside of the slow start, Seton Hall did what they needed to do. They got that game back on, on even footing, and it went back and forth like many games have recently. And to be honest, Big East tournament, uh, the final three games that we're going to play, obviously the NCAA tournament, you're probably going to find yourself in these types of settings where one or two plays is going to make or break the final result of the game. And I thought there was some good, there was some bad, and there was some ugly relative to these final two minutes and I want to kind of really nitpick and I want to go through the individual sequences and we can talk about what really stood out positively and what we kind of have to learn from because some of the things kind of reared its ugly head from the Michigan State Oregon kind of meltdown and we were hoping that we were going to get away from that conversely like I said some big time plays were made and they should be recognized so let, let's start with exactly what you just described which at the 150 mark Q hits this clutch three with the game tied at 63. Oh, before we go into there, Mike, just from a simple basketball fan mindset, man, that was an exciting last two minutes of that ball. It, it game. was. It that was fabulous I, it, ball out there. It's just hard for me to enjoy it in the moment. I'm on pins and needles. I get to go back and watch it a second and third time for the sake of the podcast. And I'm like, wow, that was really good basketball. But in the moment, my emotions are all over the map as a fan, but Let's break it down critically. Okay, so with 150 left, like I just said, I feel like I'm repeating myself. Quincy hits that big clutch three. They made Butler pay for going under the pick and roll. Roll set the pick. He dove for the basket. Both defenders followed him, and Quincy made a three from the top of the key. And he's going to have to continue to make that shot because I think that's going to be the defensive philosophy until he starts sticking that at a high rate. You said some nights he's got it, some nights he doesn't. If I'm the, the opposing coach, I'm going to force Q to beat me in that situation. I'm not letting Gill get a free dive to the rim in a tie ball game. Just, and it's probably it's probably the right call there. So you can't blame Laval Jordan for saying, hey, sag off that shooter and make sure the big guy doesn't get an easy dunk. All right, so check check one in the good column for Seton Hall on that sequence. Then Butler comes back down the floor. We dig our heels in defensively, and Q forces Baldwin to take a very difficult step-back three-point attempt to try to tie the game. It really didn't have a chance. We corral the rebound, and we go back the other way. So I love the fact that we have Q on our side in these types of moments to shut down the other team's best player. You know, what's funny is I'm watching that play unfold and all I can think of is David Woods, our friend from the Indianapolis Star, saying Kamar Baldwin does not get enough love from the Nash or from the Big East press. And all I'm thinking to myself is he's not going to miss this shot, man. This kid is so money. He's not going to miss this shot. Great defense by Q. 
I watched a lot of basketball over this weekend and I watched a lot of other games on ESPN and there was segments where they would cut away at a commercial break and they were showing lockdown defenders across the country. And the, you know, three guys come up on the first promo screen and I'm like, ah, you know, a Duke guy, a Kansas guy. I'm like, you know, same old garbage. They're just kind of promoting the big dogs. And then they flip the screen to another three players. You know who was in the second sequence of guys? Quincy McKnight. He's getting his love. And he deserves it though. Cause in a moment like that, I don't think Q gets beaten off the dribble where other guys do. There was a, a sequence right before that, and this is not to pick on Shavar, but uh, Baldwin got to like 17 feet and he did a little step back and kind of just tied the game to get it to 63, if I'm not mistaken, right over Shavar prior to that. I mean, so, and here's Q making his life very, very difficult and forcing him well out beyond the three-point line on the very next sequence. All right, let, let's move forward. Whoa. So now we bring the bring the ball back down and, and Powell takes over. Take it from okay. there. At 104, Powell runs a pick and roll with Gill and throws him a nice feed, and they go up by five. It's it's the exact opposite of what happened on the last sequence, right? Now Powell has the ball in the same sequence, and you have to respect Powell's ability to shoot the ball behind the three-point line no matter how cold he's been, and there he is. Gill gets a free dive to the roll, and that was just easy pickings to put him up by five, and you felt like the game was over. But, 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 <laughs> but. brings the ball back down. They, they, they dig in defensively again. And Q is just kind of ticking the, the good column here, right? He, he jumps the passing lane, picks off the, the pass. And he looks like he's going to go coast to coast for the, the game ceiling layup. But Baldwin does not give up on the play. He is right on his hip all the way to the basket. And I'm saying to myself with 47 seconds to play, pull it out. But he doesn't. He takes it all the way to the rim and he tries to put up a little reverse type layup to try to draw contact and get a foul. And it doesn't work out in his favor. This wasn't the first time he pulled this off in this game. There was a point earlier in the game where Q pulled it down the court where he ran into a three defenders. You know, so IQ normally the announcers, they normally, you know, love to heap praise on people. They were killing Q for going on one on three at that point. Pull that ball back, make a better, smarter decision. I know he's in attack mode, but you got to understand time and place. And that's what I expect out of my point guard. No matter how heated and intense the moment is, I need my point guard on the floor to know time and score. So if, if he feels that he's got a clean look for a layup uncontested, of course you drive in, you take the two points in that situation. He's, a, he's our best free-throw shooter, as he shows in the, in the upcoming sequence. You should dribble that back out, force them to make the decision to foul you, go to the line and, and hit the two free-throws. Instead, they grab the rebound. Sandro's coming and flying to try to get the offensive rebound, and before you know it, they have numbers the other way on a four-on-three fast break, and it leads to a Jordan Tucker three to cut the lead to two. So, okay, I can't fault the defense, but the lack of judgment on Q's take to the basket is what led to that three. But once again, let's, let's give Q his kudos. They then foul him, and this is the 17th foul, so it's the first one-on-one -one attempt uh, that Seton Hall has to execute, and he drills both. Okay, so now we're, now we're back up four. And the next sequence, just my blood starts boiling as these last 19 seconds start, start to play out. So go, go ahead. You, you take it from there. Now you think we're in a good spot here. We're... Up by four, we're at 20 seconds left. They push the ball up court, and McDermott somehow 
gets wide open in the corner. First guy you don't want to leave open on that Butler team is Kamar Baldwin. The second guy you don't want to leave open is Bastard Buckets. You cannot leave him open. And everyone's kind of picking on Kale initially because that's his assignment, but that's not what happened. Willard even said it in the post game. He's like, we should have switched there. Our defensive philosophy is to switch there. And Shavar decides to go underneath the pick from Jordan Tucker. He's in the lane waiting for, I don't know what he's waiting for, but the ball goes to the corner. Kale is now trailing the play and McDermott hits the three and you see Shavar in the lane kind of just drop his head and shrug his shoulders because he realized that that should have been his defensive switch in the corner just to make life a lot harder on McDermott there. He probably shouldn't have even caught the ball in that sequence, but the ball goes in. Now they're down by one. And once again, Q steps up and drains two more free throws in another one-on-one situation to go back up by three. And now there's about, you know, 12 to 13 seconds to go on the clock. And Willard, I think, kind of just didn't know what he wanted to do. So, so here's a couple issues that I have. He says that he told the team, I want a foul in this sequence, even though he normally doesn't do that. Quincy McKnight is at the free throw line, making his second free throw of the one-on-one to put him up by three, and he has four fouls. Why is someone not waiting to check into the game if he makes that second free throw to sub him out? Or even better, if you're not sure about how you want to execute this sequence, since you don't practice it or your strategy is normally not to foul, you have two timeouts in your pocket. When Q hits the second free throw, why are we not calling timeout there? None of it makes a whole lot of sense. Let, let's go through how the play runs down. So Butler inbounds the ball, brings it down court. Both Miles Powell and Quincy McKnight, they both try to jump Aaron Thompson right as he gets past half court. He splits him with a little pass. Who's there? That man McDermott again, the one you don't want to leave open. And he drills another three with 10 seconds. So let's walk through just what you wanted to talk to here. Yeah, so, because to me, it's a, it's really important who's bringing the ball up here. Okay. Thompson so, is not a three-point threat. He's not. He can't hit a jump shot from eight feet away. And now I'm jumping him at half court to try to foul him? So, so you asked, why is Quincy not being subbed out? I'm not subbing him out, okay? He's got four fouls. I get it. You're not taking the, him off the court because, God forbid, you get into an offensive uh, possession with him not on the court and not being able to hit those free throws. I mean, he's been hitting free throws like money lately. Run Powell at If you're going to foul him, run Powell at him. Let Powell take the foul. Put Thompson on the free throw line with nine seconds left, eight seconds left, and box the hell out. You're going to hit those two free throws. Get the ball back to Quincy. Go back to the foul line. But they were playing like a quasi zone because they were both kind of splitting up at the top at the three-point line. And they both kind of looked at each other like, who's going to go get them? It's just the execution. They, they were lost. So as a coach, you have the opportunity with those two timeouts to call it right there. Bring them over. Make sure you get organized. Say, you know what, Powell, I want you on Thompson. Q, I want Sean McDermott so he doesn't get he doesn't get free. And I don't want you to foul him until there's about five or six seconds to go in the game clock. Because here's my other issue with this sequence. Let's say Powell does foul Thompson. Thompson's like an 80-plus percent free throw shooter. With 10 seconds to go, we're still in the one-and-one. One. So if Thompson gets fouled, what do you do if you're 
Laval Jordan? Do you tell him to make the first and miss the second? No. Or do you I, tell him to make both? I tell him to make both. You still have enough time to go there, foul whoever gets the inbound, and then once again, try to execute your last second play. So none of, none of that bothers me. That what bothers me is that this is now the second time in two weeks that we've come up with a defensive possession that we didn't know what we were doing. Last week against Providence, we come out of a timeout. Miles forgets his defensive assignment. We give up an open three-pointer. This week... You got two guys rushing to foul. And personally, I don't think they were going to foul. I think they were going to try to trap. If that's the case, I, I just, you thought I was upset in the moment. If I, they were actually going to trap him. Oh, geez. Do Please you want two guys to go foul somebody, including <laughs> one guy with a four fouls? You got to go back and look at the tape. They're looking at each other. Like, I, who, I get, get that. I don't them. think they're going to foul him. Uh, so here's the thing. Here's my bigger issue. I, I know we're going to get to the, the, the final sequence in which they pull out the win, but let's say that game goes to overtime and somehow they lost. And I'm going to change the setting. That's an NCAA tournament game. How are you going to feel? We've now gone through Michigan State. We've now gone through the collapse at Oregon. This, in my opinion, was a mini collapse. If this rears its ugly head in an NCAA tournament game and happens for a fourth straight time because we're not executing strategically the right way in the final minutes of a game. How are you going to feel? I, do you really want to see the season end like this potentially? It would be horrendous, but the, there was good news. There was a silver <laughs> lining, Mikey. There's a well, silver it, lining. So we, we might still as well had... just segue and make, let, let's just go ahead and make this the, whoa, did you see that moment for the week? Because not only does it win the game, but you know, obviously it, it just changed the emotion and the euphoria of the game from all this negative vibe that could have been to go, you know, raise the, raise the, the Jolly Roger. Everyone's got their phones out. Everyone's on Instagram, man, winning changes everything, right? You, know, you win the game and you're on like Fox news and you're on the local news stations. Uh, Sandro's hugging his dad from uh, back in Georgia for the game. Everything changes. The storylines were like, Kumbaya. You, you know what was phenomenal about that whole thing? When was the last time we ran a successful inbounds play like that? I mean, don't we normally complain about the lack of imagination on our inbounds where we're throwing it three quarters of the court back and, and, and just getting the ball in? I mean, I was just, that, I, that's what surprised me the most. Don't don't make me turn a really positive moment and give me a sour grapes and gripes on on the breakdown of this play. I think Willard did exactly what he had to do, and he explained it in the post game. He's like, "Well, everything else was decoy action, right? So we got Gill, we pulled him out of the middle, we ran Miles off of a you know a double triple uh, screen fake to run him to the corner." But he even says the reality is Miles or anybody really can't get a quality shot off with 0.6 seconds to go running off of a double pick and then ending up in the corner, kind of going away from the basket. So logically you were going to go towards the rim, try to get a foul or make an athletic play with your six eleven guy. And, and that's what he did. But will it also describes that he stole the move from watching the Sacramento Kings late night on television. And therefore he instituted the play. And, and my first reaction, and like I said, sour grapes and gripes here, Kevin, you're allowed to watch whatever game you want to watch. 
you can watch a college game. You can watch an NBA game. You can ask your coaches to watch film. And over the last 10 years, you can steal whatever imbalance play you want to steal. And all he does is run a bunch of decoy. And all Mamu does is run to the rim. And I found this funny because, you know, I, I was like, who the heck was guarding Sandro on that play? And I don't even know who this guy was. <laughs> I think some they brought some guy. kid in off the bench and hadn't had a minute of play. Redheaded. It was a redheaded kid. I was like, I need the redheaded stepchild in the basket. I think he was just a tall kid that they decided they were going to stick on Mamu. But you know what's great? You know, I'm watching all the replays I can. You know, it makes the ESPN national highlights. The announcer on ESPN says, and he catches it with his left hand and puts it up. And I'm just thinking... You haven't watched a single Seton Hall game if you and you don't even know that Mamu's left-handed. I mean, since you brought it up, there were other great plays this week as well. So we have some runner-up votes. The Tyree Samuel to Rogue Gill for the one-handed alley-oop throwdown was phenomenal. And, and you got the and you got Miles Kale at the end of the St. John's game. He gets the steal. Throwing the hammer down, Mikey. It wasn't a hammer. He did the it was kind of cool that he did a 360 dunk, but there was no hammer. Throwing they, the hammer down. I'm loving it. The reality is it's it's not even a contest. I mean, no, Sandro's no, really game is. winner takes the kick. I mean, he executed the play. The play was a great play that was drawn up. You have to make a super athletic play. It has to be a perfect pass from Q. The stars have to align, and it did, and Seton Hall needed it to because they needed that win badly. So as much as they needed that win, they needed to have an easy one in the next game. So and Seton Hall 81, St. John 65. The Hall got off to a much better start in this one as they took a 14-point lead into the half, 36-22. It didn't hurt that the Johnnies were anemic on offense as they just shot 9 of 37 and turned it over 9 times in that first half. Seton Hall didn't do anything fancy in the second half, but they never let St. John's get any closer than 7. Eventually, they pulled away on the strength of a late 22-10 run. St. John's tossed in some garbage time buckets for the final margin, but the game was never in doubt. Okay, the stat sheet on this one had Miles Powell lead all SHU players with 18, but he was 6 of 18 from the field, 2 of 11 from 3, but he did find other ways to contribute, 5 rebounds and 4 assists. Sandro Mamukelishvili had 16 points and 9 rebounds, and Romaro Gill had 12 points, 6 boards, and another 3 blocks. Jared Roden contributed 14 points in a starting role once again for one of five Seton Hall players to be in double figures. Figueroa led all scorers in the game with 19 for St. John's. Seton Hall was once again solid from the line, 19 of 23. And they also, as Steve Lavin said, shared the sugar, 19 assists on 27 made baskets. However, they were even on the glass and still gave up another 17 offensive rebounds. And they were also a little sloppy with the ball. 17 turnovers, St. John's with 14 as well. It was not a clean game, 31 total. You never really got kind of into a good flow. There was some up and down pace, but it was it was just very choppy. Now, Mike, just to get it out there, this was a game I had to listen to 
over the iHeartRadio app. I listened to the SOU broadcast because I was driving home from a little mini family vacation. But my my overall take from it was it was it felt like a real blog game. Well, it it, it kind of was a blog game. I really don't know how to kind of sugarcoat it any other way. It, it it was nice to see other guys play good basketball confidently outside of Miles Powell. Sandro had an all-around game. He was very aggressive, breaking the press. Roden hit three or four from three. Gill was efficient at the rim. Six of six, I believe five of them were dunks. And Quincy McKnight had six assists. But it just, once again, not a Picasso. It's it's what they needed. They needed a game where they kind of led wire to wire, where they really weren't threatened, build up a little confidence. But, you know, like I said, they needed an easy one. But part of it was due to St. John's. Now, you know, last week we talked about Providence, and I said that Providence should not be beating Seton Hall just based on talent. They don't match up. Here's a team that really doesn't match up, and but for Georgetown beating this conference, St. John's is the most undermanned team in the Big East. I mean, in general, they started off the season low on talent, and then they lose their best player. It's debatable whether Figueroa is their best player, but I get your point. He's the second leading scorer on the team. You know, he's a senior. It was a big blow for them. I mean, at at this point, you got to run St. John's out of the building, and as poorly as St. John's played, in my opinion, that felt like that should have been a 30-plus blowout, right? I mean, you're giving me some of the numbers in the first half, Tom. Nine of 37 plus nine turnovers and you're letting them maintain contact at oh. what 14 that, that's ridiculous I, i'm listening to the broadcast and i'm still checking my phone on the box score and i'm like the saint john's really have six points this deep into the game i mean it must have been just real ugly to watch no no don't get me wrong seton hall played them in the half court they did not let saint john's get out in transition. They did not turn the ball over in the first half uh, against St. John's press. It's hard for St. John's to get into their press if they can't make a basket. But the couple of times that they did, Sandro made a huge difference, and he was not in that first matchup. They had no answer for Sandro in the middle and then him bringing up the ball and attacking their their full-court press. So once St. John's was forced to play a half-court basketball game, our defense did contribute a lot to that 9 of 37 and 9 turnovers. But there were some good looks for St. John's, and man, they weren't even close. So, Mike, you mentioned we really needed an easy one, and this basically was that easy one. But shouldn't that have meant getting a little more burn for the bench? I mean, Ike had 11 minutes. Samuel got seven. Nelson got five. Kale got 19. Shavar got 16. I mean, basically... For most of these players, it was the same amount of run that they got during a tight Butler game. Well, that's because for the most part, St. John's hung around between 10 to 15 points for much of that game. And I I don't blame Kevin. You cannot play with fire this late in the season. So unless we have them down by that. I don't buy it, Mike. You're in control of this game. You were down by 10 points in the previous game, and you're getting the same amount of bird for these guys. Come on, St. John's was not threatening. Okay, so then that there's a deeper issue here. Then he has literally lost a lot of confidence in these guys. Because in my opinion, today was the day to make sure that Q got some rest. 
and made sure that Nelson got a chance to maybe get 15 to 20 minutes and just see if he can find some rhythm. It was a chance to have Gill and Ike split the 2020 that they were doing early in the season and just build some confidence for, for him in the middle or get Samuel more involved. I mean, he has not gotten as many shots now that Sandro's back and he only got another seven minutes. I, I was really confused and I don't want to hear, but miles kale scored 10 and he's, he's building his confidence again. And he's going to, he's going to take that double digit performance and bring it to the rest of the season. Maybe he will. But the reality is the bench only took a total of 10 shots in this game. And two of them were from Kale very, very late. And of Kale's 10 points, six of them were legit garbage time in which he scored them when they were up by 20 with under 330 to play. To me, that's not getting the, the run where you build the confidence. You know, getting a guy out of the doghouse and back into a rotation player is not he had really good garbage time. If they would have brought in Torian Thompson and he scored five points, we're going to give Thompson 20 minutes a game now? Are I mean, you come on. hearing them chanting their name, Torian, Torian, I, I, I felt Torian. like I owed Thompson a way to get back into this podcast. I mean, oh, he's my he's poor gone, guy. man. My poor you know, guy. I know you love, I know you love Torian. But, you but, know, yeah. let's, let's bring back something serious here. You know, Miles Powell was just really not still shooting well, Mike. And this was this seemed like a game where he should have been able to kind of break out a little bit, no? So, so the story won't go away. And, and here's where I'm going to push back here. Miles was probably forcing a lot in these previous games, contributing to his 25% shooting clip. You know, he's maybe taking shots deeper than he should to avoid the double team. So you can kind of almost justify some of the poor numbers. You can blame it on the concussion. But today was another two for 11, and I don't think he was forcing it. I think he got more shots today in the flow of the game where he was able to kind of take his player one-on-one, you know, get that open step back, and most of those looks were not even close. They just weren't. Again, I'm listening to the broadcast, and I'm just like, man, the shots are not going down here. It's one thing if he had like three or four rim out, but he's clanging them, he's leaving them short, the quote that I took away was, and, and maybe Miles should have been making this quote directly about himself, but he says, I don't feel like we are at our best yet. I feel like March is going to be a good month for us. If Miles can turn the corner, I think March is going to be an awesome month for us, but you're not going deep into the tournament with him shooting 25% from three on double digit attempts night in and night out. Well, I'm hoping he just turns it around on March 4th on senior night because I'm going to be right there watching. In all honesty, Mike, we've, we've been complaining. It's been, a, you know, we've been doing a lot of griping here. But the bottom line is that the Pirates got two big wins this week. They broke a two-game slide. They got the two wins they needed. And, and this is what you want to see from them. Sure. And if, if you could indulge me for a minute or two here. When do I, I not indulge in, you, Mikey? Come on. Uh, how, about, how about you indulge me without calling me the encyclopedia for once? How about that? <laughs> All right. I, I want to dive into some numbers around the country here, because if you had a number next to your name this week, it wasn't easy. There were 18 total losses for teams in the top 25, specifically six teams in the top 10. I mean, speaking of like the top 10, you had – Three of the top four lose. Baylor went down to Kansas. San Diego State lost at home to a 14 and 14 UNLV. And Gonzaga had a, what a great game. I, this was late West Coast here, but BYU, you know, basically went toe to toe with Gonzaga 
and you want to talk about a crowd that was just into it, wow, that BYU crowd was awesome, and they stormed the court, and they deserved to storm the court. That was a legit uh, court storming, and as somebody jokingly said, Nobody was drunk in that audience, right? <laughs> oh, man. The they, Martinellis they was flowing after the game, Mike, though. So, so it is tough to defend your top 25 ranking, as we saw across the nation. And the Pirates were one of those teams that did not stumble this week, regardless of, as we said, they play beautiful basketball or not. So overall, I think they're in pretty good position. They are most likely going to probably move up to number 13 in the AP poll, they sit at a net of 17. Their strength of schedule is 30. They got 10 quad one wins, which is second most in the nation. And they have a nine and four road slash neutral record. Those are really, really strong numbers on their resume. I think they should be in good position, but I'm kind of tired of hearing, oh, there are three. I just, there are three. Let, let's talk about it. Let's actually do our own little bracketology here for a couple minutes and break down the top 12 seeds. I'll give you my opinion, and you tell me if you agree where these teams stand currently. All now, right? Now, Mike, I'll, I'll just say this ahead of time. I absolutely despise these brackets. I really do. I mean, all this stuff that this past week is a good example of that stuff. The, the stuff is so volatile at this time of the year, and it's going to get more volatile as the conference uh, tournaments happen. So I, I will indulge you, but I can't but stand that, it. But that's what makes it so much fun. Is now I, I don't I don't get to just watch guy. I don't get to watch Seton Hall basketball. I'm sitting there watching like ten games on my couch Saturday and Sunday. And my wife's like, "Let's go through it. You don't got to justify yourself, Mike. Let's just go through it." <laughs> You're probably sitting there with my wife going. I, I was on the slopes this on? weekend, Mike. I was on the slopes with the kids. So you watch the game. You watch your BYU Gonzaga. I'm coming down the bunny hill with my eight-year-old. All right, all right. So, so here are my one seeds after this weekend. So there was obviously the massive clash in the Big 12. Uh, Kansas pulls out the road victory at Baylor. I don't think it affects Baylor dropping down from a one seed, but I think it puts Kansas number one in the AP, and I think it moves Kansas potentially to the number one overall seed in the tournament. Kansas is my number one in the Midwest. Baylor is still a number one seed in the South, and Gonzaga, due to the fact that San Diego State also lost, even though they lost, Gonzaga is my third-ranked number one out in the West, and I know this is probably not where they should be right now, but I'm kind of projecting a little bit. I think Duke will probably be in the East because I project them to be the ACC champion. And now that San Diego State's not undefeated, I don't see how Duke doesn't get a one seed ahead of San Diego State. I, think you're, bra- I think you're breaking your own rules that you set up. Let's talk about bracketology right now, but I'm going to project about Duke. But in general, <laughs> I, I don't have a problem with this. This All is right, probably, right. if the season ended, this is probably how they'd set it up. There's no way... They stick a Dayton or a San Diego State ahead of Duke in, in in the brackets. And that's that's kind of my mindset, right? When they start really diving into the, the body of work, I think Duke is going to – but no shame on Dayton and San Diego State. I think they are going to be currently, as of today, ranked five and six on the two-seed line. So Dayton should stay in the East as you know as the fifth-ranked team. He kind of snake the, the picks around. 
and then San Diego State would be the two seed out west. So ironically, losing probably helps San Diego State. They kind of get to stay more regionalized in a better matchup than having to be in the east. Anyway, Monday has a huge matchup. You have Louisville versus Florida State. I think the winner of that game is your current two seed out in the south. And then I'm going to say that right now, and this is not going to be a popular response, but Creighton, based on some of the metrics, is probably that last two seed, the eighth best team out in the Midwest. Until we, beat, on that? until we beat Creighton, I don't disagree with you. I like okay. that you're saying that a future winner of a game is the current number two seed. I like that. That Again, you're breaking your own rules. But again... I've got no problem with this. Dayton's been playing well. San Diego State, obviously. I think losing is going to help San Diego State more in the long run than than going sure, undefeated sure. through the season. And this is where I think it becomes fun. I don't think there's a clearest cut group of, you know, four teams that are the three seeds, which allows you to kind of get into these last three games, not just for what Seton Hall has to accomplish, but you can watch any of these other teams and really get into the college basketball landscape. So I think the loser of that Monday night matchup in the ACC defaults and becomes a three seed, whether it's Louisville or FSU. I don't think that's debatable. I don't see how you don't have the Big Ten champion in Maryland not as a three seed. And then after that, I think you got six more teams that are battling for a couple spots. You got Seton Hall, Villanova. You got Kentucky with only five losses as the potential SEC champion. You have potentially the best team out of the Pac-12, Oregon, Arizona, or Colorado. And I know the Pac-12 kind of has a bad rep for not being a strong conference, but when you look at the net numbers of all three of those schools, they're all in the top 20. And then here's a couple more that are kind of interesting. BYU. You think I'm like overhyping this game that I watched late last night, but BYU jumped to 14 in the net after beating Gonzaga. They're going to get a chance to probably play them again in the WCC finals. If they beat them again, I don't see why BYU couldn't jump up further. Okay. And then last so, but not least, I'm, I'm going to give you one more. I'm going to give you one more. Last but not least, Michigan State. I know they've struggled recently, but their net is a 13, right in that space where you would want to kind of be a three seed. And their last four games to end the Big Ten, and they are 10 and six in the Big Ten right now, are against four ranked opponents. So if they run the slate against those four ranked opponents and they finish 14 and six in the big 10, Michigan state's got to be moving right back up into that conversation. So here's what's mind numbing about this basketball season. This is what's making this college basketball season. So great. You've potentially just listed a probable big 10 sec and PAC 12 champion as a three seed, Mike. Sure. You've, you've yep. put uh, you've put teams from normally what they consider mid-major conferences ahead of them. That's how crazy this season is. Now, do you want me to make a comment about your eight teams in the mix for the three seed? Fine. I mean, you know, it doesn't sound off the wall. I think Creighton could drop down if Seton Hall beats them on their senior night. If Villanova somehow gets hot and runs the rest of the table, maybe they win the Big East, and there's no way Creighton gets a two-seed if Nova wins the Big East. Same for Seton Hall. If Seton Hall wins the Big East, Creighton drops down. So your my future projection in your current rankings doesn't necessarily match up. But none of this is out of the uh, out of is 
none of this is not possible. I this but, is but, as good but, a but description can, as can I've I, seen. Can I pick on some of the guys that kind of cover Seton Hall? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on Carino here for a second. Carino keeps on writing saying, "Well, the three games that Seton Hall have left are all against you know really strong net opponents at Marquette, at Creighton, home Villanova." So, you know, they really can't hurt themselves anymore. This St. John's game was the last game that they could hurt themselves. If Seton Hall goes one and two in those remaining games, then let's say they lose in the Big East semifinals because they're not the one seed anymore, right? Are they really a three seed based on what these other teams might do? If these other teams perform well, Seton Hall is not getting a three if they go one and two down the stretch. No, there, there's way too many permutations. There's way too many things that can happen, you know. So I, you can't say it. They, you can't say they're definitively a three seed. I mean, this is going to be the roughest part of the season. We talked about feasting on the first half of the Big East season maybe, and now the second half is going to get rough. Well, you've got at Marquette, home to Nova, at Creighton, as you just said, we could basically go over for three at these games. They could, and they could play very good basketball on all three, and we'll probably sour grapes and gripes and rip it apart, but the reality is, yes, their numbers will still look really, really good. I just don't think they're going to be good enough to be a three, and depending on how well these other teams do, they could be borderline a four now. So this whole protected seed in Albany, eh, there's a lot of work to do. That's all I'm trying to get at here is Seton Hall has a lot of work to do, It's going to be a lot of fun because these other teams have a lot of work to do. And if you're a college basketball fan, it's not just about your field of 68 and filling out your bracket. You can really get into these upcoming games over the next two weeks and really enjoy championship week as well. You, you, I, I love this part of the season. I, 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 you know, like I said earlier, I, I'm not a big bracketology guy, and I'm just sitting here going, "Did he really make me talk about this? Did he really make me say this?" And speaking about, did they really say that? Mike, All right, well, what do you got this week? I, I'm going in a completely different direction with this segment now that we've kind of changed the title. I feel like it's given us more freedom to have some positive fun with it instead of just picking on the announcers because we had two sets of announcers this week that I really think did a great job. Brian Custer and Jim Spernarkel were on the call for the Butler game, and I couldn't find anything that they kind of stumbled on or you know stuck their foot in their mouth. And then in the second game on, on CBS, we had Ian Eagle – and once again, Spernarkle. And in my opinion, and I've said this on the podcast before, they are one of my favorite play-by-play color commentator duos of all time. They just have a synergy amongst each other that just really, really works. So there was a there was a segment early on in the game. It was probably, you know, when Seton Hall was, I think it was they were up 17-7 or something like that. But Sandro goes to the free throw line, and Ian Eagle goes, Mamu Kelishvili to the free throw line. I wonder how many times I can say that over the course of the game. I'm going to say about 100. And Smart Uncle's like starting to giggle and laugh already. And he's like, well, now his nickname, as you know, is Mamu, but you won't go there. You're a full name kind of guy. And Ion Eagle goes, no, 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 no. Let's put it this way. If I'm on Wheel of Fortune, would the puzzle be Mamu or would it be Mamu Kelishvili? And Jim Smart Uncle goes, well, it depends if the category's nicknames. And Ion Eagle goes, no, Pat, I want to solve the puzzle. Sandro Mamu Kelishvili. And Jim Spernarkle is now just bawling, laughing. And he's like, well, you're going to have to buy a lot of letters. And I, I didn't get the last part, but I think like Ion Eagle goes, I can't spell it, but I can say it. 
That's that's really good. Mike, I'm going to go negative here. Normally, for for as long as we've run this segment, you've been negative. All of a sudden, you go positive on me. I'm going to go negative, and I don't know the kid's name. It's whoever the kid was that was running the color commentary in the SOU game. Now, Mike normally makes fun of me when I listen to these broadcasts. I like them. It gives me a way to listen to the game when I can't watch it. I want to know up to the minute what's going on. Michael, DVR the game and watch it later. I can't do that. I need to know right now. But toward the end of the game, I've got some. I've got a bone to pick. It's it's garbage time. Miles Kale either does a really good defensive play or he makes a he makes that play toward the end of the game where he made that fancy circus shot, but the refs called it on the floor. And the color guy goes berserk and says, "That's the kind of stuff we've been looking for Miles for Miles Kale. That's what made him a starter in his freshman year." Now, what made him a starter in that freshman year if you know your if you've done your homework was the cheap floor at the dunk. There was all sorts of condensation coming up at the dunk. Desi Rodriguez twisted a knee or an ankle. I can't remember which. He ended up not playing for about three games, and then he came off the bench for a pair of games. That's why Miles Kale started his freshman year. There was no other reason. And he played really well when he started. At the end of his freshman year, you really saw that potential. But you got to be better than that kid. I think I was starting to rub off on you, Tommy. I don't know. I apologize. <laughs> Mike, this coming week, we've only got one game, but it's a big one. It's at Marquette. I've been waiting for this all season. We go behind enemy lines with a Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter. Tommy, I'm looking at my notes here for the podcast, and all it says for this segment is hate, hate, hate. I'm really <laughs> Mikey, this is what college basketball is about. This is part of what I miss from the old Big East. This needs to happen in the new Big East. We've got way too much respect for these teams. Well, I'm, I'm, it, it didn't feel like we had that hatred in that first game. It, it took Seton Hall a while to get going, and they kind of plodded through the second half and kept Marquette at bay. I am intrigued to see if their fan base kind of brings it up a notch as we come to their building. They are really going to need this win. I kind of want to hear the perspective of how they're looking forward to this matchup. He covers the Marquette Golden Eagles men's basketball team and other sports for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Ben Steele. Ben, how are you tonight? What's up, guys? Thanks for having me on. Excited to, uh, to talk a little hoops here. Now, normally, I throw it right to Mike for the first question, but I got to jump in here and tell you that this is potentially the behind the enemy lines I've been looking forward to the most <laughs> all season. You know, as yeah. a longtime Big East fan, I think I missed the good old-fashioned hatred that used to exist between the teams. <laughs> but thanks to Wojo and his band of Golden Eagles, <laughs> I think this is a team we could finally sink our teeth into. Yeah, the last uh, last few meetings, last three or four meetings, actually, have been, been pretty spicy. So, Ben, do you think the Marquette fan base shares a similar opinion towards Seton Hall as they come into their building? Uh, yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, considering... You know, probably the biggest the biggest issue is probably the uh, the Big East semifinal game and the tournament last year. 
I don't know if we need to relitigate everything that happened in that game. It'll probably take a hour-long podcast, but yeah, I think that uh, that amped up the uh, the animosity among the fan base. I mean, as a journalist, you know, I'm not. Uh, I don't share those kind kind of. That doesn't quite stir the passions that way for me. But there's definitely definitely a little, uh, like I said, a little spice to this uh, Seton Hall Marquette thing. Uh, we we could technically blame the rest because that game was what four hours yeah. long, and uh, our podcast yeah, guess, probably wouldn't even do it justice. Yeah, I guess everyone can agree on that. We can find something to agree on. All right, Ben. So so recently, after a tough three-game stretch, Marquette has now lost three in a row. They are fifth overall yeah. in the Big East standings, and they sit 17-9 and overall. Seven. It, is yeah. there anything to be concerned about if you're a coach, Wojciechowski, or are these three losses just to kind of teams in the top four of the conference, and that's basically just a, a difficult stretch of the schedule? Yeah, it is. It is a tough stretch, you know. The, we should point out they they've lost to Villanova, Creighton, and, and Providence in those three games. Um, you know, Creighton's playing as well as anybody in the country. You know, losing at Villanova, it's nothing to uh, be ashamed about. And Providence yesterday, uh, you know, it's a, a Providence team that's trying to put a run together, trying to to put insert itself in the conversation for the NCAA tournament bid and. They, they certainly did that yesterday. So just losing three game, those three games just on face value, it doesn't seem bad. But the way they've lost, you know, they lost by one at, at Villanova, which they, they were 18 points behind, and they kind of cosmetically added points at the end. They had a chance there in the last minute, made a comeback. Creighton, they just, Marquette just shot terribly from the beginning of the game, just cold start. Could never get back in that. And then yesterday, just never, just, just got blown out from five minutes five minutes into the game so each game has been progressively worse so that's something to be concerned about if you're a marquette fan and i guess the biggest the biggest concern is probably offense just cold shooting nights all around marcus howard's kind of kind of struggled a bit with his uh, efficiency and none of the other players are playing particularly well either so it's just been a frustrating offensive stretch here for Marquette. Now, prior to the loss at Providence, the Golden Eagles were projected as a sixth seed in most in the mm-hmm. most recent ESPN bracketology. What kind of work yeah. do you think they still have to do in their last four games to solidify their position in the tournament? Yeah, I think yeah, that's they could you know probably with this recent stretch maybe. Their ceiling is probably a five seed, even, you know, they'd have to win out to win the last four, including beating Seton Hall, which is a tough task. But, you know, I think a six seed is probably probably where they end up. But if they, you know, if they keep up losing, they could probably slide down. Like, they're on a trajectory now. If they lose a couple more, probably a seven or eight seed. I mean, they're safely in the tournament, I think. Even if, if they lose the last four, maybe they'll be on the bubble. But I, I think they're pretty safe and... I would, I would say my bet would be that they still end up being a six seed. Let's dive into the team itself a little more specifically, the players. In my opinion, yeah. there's no doubt who the leader of this team is. Marcus Howard yeah. returned for his senior season, and after his 38 points the other day, he's now leading the country in scoring at over 27 a game. His ability to carry the team puts him, in my opinion, in the front-runner position potentially to win the Big East Player of the Year or is it really a yeah. two-man race between him and Miles Powell? I think it's still a two-man race, especially considering Seton Hall's better overall team, team overall uh, fairing this year. So that definitely gives Miles Powell the edge in that regard. I think if you look at the stats pretty closely, you know Marcus Howard's numbers may maybe a little better, but you know it's probably a cop out. But 
I, I think they'll probably just give both the guys just co-player of the year. I think, you know, that doesn't satisfy a lot of people, but I think uh, honoring two seniors, I think uh, that might be the way to go just to just co-player of the year. I think that's the way the conference probably is going to handle this. I could see it going that way, but let me throw this back to you one more time. Miles has recently struggled, and I think a lot of fans yeah. have kind of highlighted more of how his teammates have stepped up and the fact that, mm-hmm. that Seton Hall sits at the top of the standings. If if Miles is going to shoot 25% in three-point range in conference play and Howard's shooting close to 40, I mean, aren't Marquette yeah. fans going to be pushing for him to win that award? Yeah, I would I would think so. Like, like I said, if you look at the numbers, just individual numbers, I think there's a pretty – I think Marcus has probably a better case, just strictly numbers-wise. Uh, but when you factor all the, the the narrative of the team and everything, I think that's where where Miles Powell gain, gains the edge. But Marcus Marcus has struggled like a little bit over the last stretch here too. He uh, you know he fractured his nose at Xavier at the end of January. He was playing with a mask for for four games. He didn't play in the mask yesterday against Providence. That was the first time, but. He still didn't have his best shooting game yesterday. I think he was ten for ten for twenty five. I think um, so. Not his most efficient performance, but and I, th- you know, the team has just struggled shooting wise too. I think they were shooting forty percent. They were Marquette was one of the best three point shooting teams in the Big East for most of the season, but these last three games, I, I think the whole team's around thirty percent. So it's kind of the bottom's fallen out a little bit. Now, Mike's already brought up how, how Marcus shoots well from the three, but he also gets to the line eight times a game yeah. and it's averaging almost 20 shots per game. Now, the rest <laughs> of the starters on the team are only averaging about 29. Has everybody just yeah. accepted their role on the team with the understanding that Howard is going to be this high-usage type player? Yeah, I, I think that's the way it's going to be. Marcus is just—he's just wired to wired to shoot, wired to score. That's the way he's—that's uh, the way he plays the game. And we're coming up on March of his senior season. You know, I don't think—I don't think anything's going to change now. <laughs> yeah, but uh, now, sure. But, but you know, I think there have been games where 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 teammates have found their openings to to be effective, just because you know Marcus draws so much defensive attention, and there you know there's open shots that there for for his teammates to knock down that they've just struggled to do that here in this in this tough stretch all right ben so we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't ask this next question ironically Mm -hmm. when you look at the shot distribution breakdown of this year's starters versus last year's teams the numbers are very similar is that what Mm -hmm. ultimately led to how this roster is currently composed with the hauser brothers deciding to transfer yeah yeah um i think you know Sam and Joe have never come out and and said their specific reasons for why they transferred to, from Marquette. They've only said they wanted a better basketball fit, and I think if you read between the lines a bit, they were you know they, I think it's not a secret that they wanted to be more involved offensively, which is why they they left Marquette. But you know I think. Marquette's kind of like like you mentioned the numbers are pretty similar with this team. Marquette was still is still a pretty good three point shooting team, and even that's where I thought the team would miss the Hauser brothers the most was three point shooting. And this team's kind of been pretty similar this year. And I think this team still has, they, they've really struggled defensively, which I thought taking out the Hauser brothers and adding in more athletic long arm defenders, I thought this team would be a lot better defensively, but they've had a lot of struggles and they don't create turnovers at all. I think they're at the bottom of the biggies as far as turnover, per, you know, turnovers per game, turnover percentage, however you want to look at it, which is surprising to me. That's where I thought this team would be better. So, you know, losing, losing Sam and Joey, there's, 
I think the team's probably bounced back from that as well as it, as anyone probably could have expected. Well, st- staying along with that theme, we talked about it in a few questions prior, <laughs> you know, on track for a six seed, you know, maybe a ceiling mm-hmm. of a five seed. Nothing nothing to kind of, you know, be upset about. It's a pretty good season. But if those two would have stayed, the trajectory for this team was possibly top 10, easily a top 25 squad. And Are there any kind yeah. of conversations about, what could have been if those two guys would have stayed? No, I mean it's 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 hard to hard to argue hypotheticals, right? I mean, if if Sam and Joey are playing a lot, that means you know Brendan Bailey's not getting experience this year. That means Sakar Adams not playing a lot for Marquette this year. It means Jamal Kane is probably stuck on the bench again, like he was last season. Uh, so you know, it's hard to it's hard for me to kind of think about what this team could be. It's just. I, I really think that this team probably – I don't know if the ceiling quite is different if those two guys stayed. Mike likes working in ifs and buts. You know, they're like cherries and nuts. It'd be <laughs> Christmas all year long. But let, let, let's turn our focus back to the Saturday's matchup here. You know, Marquette got to a red-hot start in their first meeting, but it seemed like slowly but surely Seton Hall took control of that game. What, if anything, can they learn from that result? Oh man, that game feels like a long time ago. One thing that changed when after that game, Ed Morrow, who's a senior, who was a senior this year, uh, he left the team for personal reasons after that game. Um, so that kind of gave rise to uh, Jace Johnson coming off the bench for Marquette. Uh, he's a seven-foot grad transfer. He plays their first three seasons at Utah. So I think he's going to be a big key. Uh, Obviously, being a seven-foot guy, that, that's a big matchup for him against Seton Hall with with Gill and and Obiago is coming off the bench. So that's a you know that's a big role for him. So that, that's how I think this team probably. I think Marquette's got to be. I think they know they have to play tougher when they play Seton Hall. If that sounds like. That might sound too obvious, but I think that, that, that they just got to play tougher. You know, speaking of tougher, Theo John seemed to be a non-factor <laughs> in that game. I mean, I know he doesn't score yeah. a whole lot. But he's had tough presence yeah. down low. I'm gonna assume that he's gonna play a little better at home. Yeah, yeah. He's uh you know, he's been bothered. He's got a right uh wrist injury that he's played with all season long. If you watch a play, he's got it it's super tightly wrapped. So he struggles like holding on to the ball a little bit. But he's still he's still a good shot blocker. This matchup with Seton Hall, you know, like the, the mention against the the size of Seton Hall kinda gives Theo's only about six nine. He's strong. Very strong, but uh the height, he's at a, at a high, very, very big height disadvantage against those guys. So, yeah, that's a, it might be a tough matchup. That's why I mentioned I think Jace Johnson's going to be big on Saturday. Well, speaking of matchups, I find this very interesting. <laughs> Everybody always wants to make this a head-to-head battle of Powell versus Howard, but they don't yeah. hurt each other on defense, right? No. So, so in no, no. your opinion, who, who has the bigger X factor defensively? Is it Quincy McKnight or is it Sakara? Yeah. No, I think Quincy McKnight, there's a certain mold to guys who've been good against Marcus Howard defensively. you got to have athletic, long-armed defenders who are just relentless in their pursuit of Marcus. Because Marcus, he's really good at ball screens. He, like, he'll, he'll run, several ball, run through several ball screens, and when they play him off the ball, he just runs constantly. So the, who's ever guarding him has to, has to be relentless in pursuing him. I think Quincy McKnight's probably as well prepared as anybody. Tyshawn Alexander from Creighton, probably the guy that's done the best job on him that I've seen. Daryl Morcel from Maryland was also another guy. Those all those all guys 
kind of fit the same mold, long-armed, athletic types. Uh, so I, th- I think Seton Hall's got the edge there. I would say, though, uh, Kobe McEwen for, for Marquette, he's a kind of a bulldog kind of defensive guard. He's probably Marquette's best perimeter guard. Uh, he'll probably see a lot of time on Miles Powell, too. All right, Ben, we're going to put you on the spot. We want a prediction. Who takes this game next <laughs> oh, Saturday? Man. Oh, man. I think, look, it's going to be senior night for Marquette. Marcus Howard's last home game. I think the place is going to be pretty loud. It's going to be pretty rocking. I think Marquette's going to going to feed off that energy, and they need the, they need these two victories this week at home to, to get off this losing stretch. Uh, they play Georgetown on Wednesday. We should mention that. Um, so, I, I'm gonna predict Marquette. I'm gonna say Marquette by. I'm gonna say Marquette. Give me Marquette by four. I'm gonna say 73-69. So Ben, we'd like to thank you. We really appreciate you taking us behind enemy lines and giving us an inside view <laughs> of Marquette. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. That was Ben Steele with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Tom, I'm not gonna lie. You know, I thought Ben had some good points about why Marquette might step up and win this game. These next three games are gonna be a tough road. And speaking of a tough road, we go to the road to 24-94. And after scoring a combined 34 points versus Butler and St. John's this week, Miles Powell now trails Nick Workman by only 77 points for second place on the all-time list. I don't know, Tommy. Maybe Seton Hall can ask to play on like Wednesday night of the Big East tournament <laughs> to get an extra game in. No, because, we like, never cur- play well on that opening night, Mike. Don't uh, say that. Currently, with the maximum amount of games available, he would need to average 24.83 points a game. Once again, that's taking it to the finals of the Big East tournament and taking it to the national title game in Atlanta. I, it's it's kind of sad. I mean, it was a cool storyline to follow throughout the year, but you know, as we see this team become more diverse, we see other players stepping up and understanding their role. Miles deferring a little bit with all the double teams he's seeing. It's He's just not going to do the Marcus Howard and jack up 25 shots a game in order to have those big 35-plus type performances that would get this number back on track. You know, I think we're going to see a lot of games where Miles scores 18 to 22. Seton Hall does their thing, and they continue to win. And that's fine by me, but that's going to leave him a little bit short of Terry in the end. Well, most importantly is that the team got back on track this week, Mike. And you know what? We went 2-0. We're going to Milwaukee. We're a superior team to this year's version of the Golden Eagles. We're going to make them pay on their senior night. Don't make me give you my prediction and tell you that they're going to win because I I do feel that way. They they have the whole week off. They got their bye and I think they're going to be refocused. I think they're going to be energized. Uh, I think they're going to take this game. I think they're the matchup that Seton Hall has versus Marquette gives them so many different advantages, specifically the fact that Q has been in Howard's head over the last three or four matchups. I don't see that changing, and it's not even a mental game. Q is that good defensively, and if you can just force Howard to get his on a bunch of shots, a high volume of shots, that is going to play to the advantage of Seton Hall. And I think that they find a way to get their 10th road slash neutral game in the win column on the season. I really do. And this is a good time to have all that rest, get everybody healthy, get everybody back in the right mindset. And as we always say, go Big Blue. Go Pirates.
So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. We'll be right back.